Please take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the book of Ephesians and the fourth chapter. This is, uh, we're well into our series, uh, Christian, Discovering the Meaning of a Truly Christian Life. And then we spent the last two weeks here in Ephesians chapter 4 just walking through it verse by verse. And so this will be our final week in Ephesians chapter 4. And the emphasis in Ephesians 4 is the life that you and I have in the body of Christ. So what I want you to see, though, as we begin this morning, this third part, is verse number 1 in Ephesians 4. And verse number 1 of Ephesians 4 The Bible says this, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. Now this is the Apostle Paul when he says the prisoner of the Lord. He's not speaking with hyperbole or he's not speaking figuratively. He's literally imprisoned and he's gone to jail for preaching the gospel of Jesus. And he writes to them as the prisoner of the Lord and he says, I beseech you, I beg you, I just... All that is in in me, I want you to hear this. I beseech you that ye, would you read the next two words with me? That ye what? Walk worthy. Let's try that once more. That ye walk worthy. Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. That's how the chapter is set up. He says, I just want you to walk worthy. And then what he does next is he begins to explain some of the motivation. He says, I want you, you've been called by Christ. That's what it says there, uh, the vocation wherewith ye are called. Who does the calling? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus does the calling, and by his grace, we have been called into salvation. If we're believers, we've been called into new life with Christ. And he says, I want your life on the outside. The walk, the way that you walk, the places you go, the things you do. I want your life on the outside to be worthy of who you are where? Inside. Of who you are in Christ. Christ has called you, now your life should reflect it. And then what he does in this chapter, and we spent the last two weeks looking at it, is he begins to show us that as Christians, we are united with Christ but then we are united to other believers in the body of Christ. So in the body of Christ, we have this new reality. We talked about we're part of the new covenant, that we have a new identity in Christ, and then we live that out through the life of a local church. Or The Greek word is ekklesia, the assembly. That as Christians, we're not called to live our lives separate or independently on our own. We're called into this body of Christ. Now, there's a universal body of Christ made up of all believers worldwide who are united by the Spirit in Christ. But then just like for the Ephesians, there is a local body. And you and I are part of this local body that is called the church. We've named it Mount Greylock Baptist Church, but it is the local body of Christ assembled here at 35 Notch Road this morning. And so today, we, uh, it's exciting because today we see this local body of Christ grow. We see a new member uh, come by statement. We see a new member come by baptism, and we see our church body growing. That's an exciting thing. Do you agree with that, church? It sure is. But then in this chapter, 
the three major themes. In part one, we talked about the fact that Jesus is worthy of his body being united. That we shouldn't be divided. We should be united in Christ because Jesus is worthy of that. And then we saw last week this idea of edifying or building up the body, strengthening the body. So part two was in verses 11 through 16. So verses 1 through 13, they call us into unity. Verses 11 through verse 16, they call us into strengthening and building one another up in the faith. And this morning we come to the final emphasis in verses 17 down through 32, and that is this, we are called to be a holy body. And this is an important topic. Jesus didn't just call us to assemble. He called us to assemble for a reason. And that is our lives, both the way we live together and the way we live independently. Our lives should be holy before him. And so that's what we'll spend our time speaking about today. So pick up the story with me. We'll pick up the story in verse 17. But before we do that, I'd like to ask the Lord to bless this portion of the preaching this morning. Dear God, we do come to you grateful that for all that you've done in our lives. Lord, I thank you that we have salvation not through anything that we have done, but only by the mercy of Jesus because of his sacrifice for us. And Lord, we are grateful for our salvation today, and I pray that we will take the instruction of the scriptures for now how we should live as believers. Lord, make us a more holy people. So God, I need your help as I bring this message, and we as a church, we need the guidance of the Holy Spirit to receive it. So we ask, Lord, that this time would be all about you, that you would get the glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're going to talk about holiness. Now, when I say the word holy, what comes to mind? What comes to mind if I were to say the word holy? Now, you might picture, I don't know, depending on your background, you might go to monks in a monastery, you know, just totally isolated in a state of tranquility or something like that. That might be. Or if you grew up in a certain tradition, you may think of a, a cathedral and going into a holy place or something like that. Some of you might think of the word, when you think of the word holy, um, you may think of like perfect and sinless or something like that. When you think of the word holy this morning, I would like you to think about something, something very spiritual something very sacred, I'd like you to think about your toothbrush. Is everybody thinking about their toothbrush this morning? Where is your toothbrush? Think right now. Somebody said in the bathroom. Good. That's a good place for it. Is your toothbrush resting on the back of the toilet this morning? No, no. Do you have it lying out next to the hand soap for when? You, is that where it is this morning? But hopefully not. Hopefully not. My kids, I just hope they know where their toothbrush is. 
not to mention any names. I know that for a fact. My wife, my my nephews and nieces were staying over at my house the last two or one night ago, and uh, my my one of the one of Aaron's kids took Nehemiah's toothbrush back home with him. So I'm not sure what Nehemiah did last night. You'll have to ask his mother. But um, anyway, and she's like, "Please don't ask me. Please don't ask me. Please don't ask me." Where is your toothbrush? Well, could I submit to you that most likely your toothbrush is in a very sacred place. It is set apart from some of the less desirable components of bathroom life. It may have a protective sheath over it. It may be set somewhere. It's in a safe, protected place. Why? Because that toothbrush, let me ask you this, not just where is your toothbrush, but how many purposes does your toothbrush have? I understand that toothbrushes are great for cleaning grout or getting in those hard-to-reach places, but hopefully that, is, hopefully that is long after you have dispensed with the traditional use of the toothbrush. Your toothbrush has one purpose, and you would not ever be confused let me ask you a third question. <laughs> Who do you share your toothbrush with? <laughs> Nobody. I like that. It's the same in English as Spanish, I think. So no, nobody, right? You share that with nobody. Why? Because that is your toothbrush and in a less sacred sense than what we're talking about, I can think of no better illustration for what it means to be holy than to think of that toothbrush. The fact is, as believers, when I talk about holiness this morning, and we'll see this laid out in the scriptures, to be holy, and if you like to write down definitions, is, it is this. It is to be set apart for a special use or a special purpose. It is to be set apart for a special purpose. And I don't want us to get all, we don't need to get too lofty or theological or pseudo-spiritual about this today. The fact of, is this, if you have been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, he has called you for a special purpose. He only wants you in certain places. He doesn't want to share you with anyone and he wants your very body to be used for his glory. We are his. We belong to him. So look what he says in the, these verses. Look with me, and the first thing you'll notice on the road to this holy way of life for we Christians is this. He points out a Gentile mind. He says, forsake the way of the Gentiles. That's in verse 17. This I say, therefore, verse 17, and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth, from now on, walk not as other Gentiles walk. Now, this is interesting. Gentile would be a sort of, originally, it would have been a sort of ethnic term for people that were not Jewish. But he's not using it in primarily ethnic terminology here, he's given it spiritual significance. He says, well, um, understanding the, the scriptures throughout history, you're not, you don't have a Jewish identity. 
You used to be Gentiles. You, were, you grew up in the, in the typical culture of the Greco-Roman world. Or for us, we grew up in the culture of the typical Western civilization. This is how we grew up. And, and having not a Jewish identity, it, the other option in the Jewish concept would be you're either Jew or Gentile. But the Holy Spirit is giving us a new identity for the church. And he's saying as Christians now, we are not to walk as the overall Gentile world walks. So if you would allow me this morning, when we think of the Gentiles, we're thinking of the world system. The system of how this world operates. And what he says is, as a Christian, you should operate under a different guide. You should operate under a different principle. Follow along with me. He says, don't walk as other Gentiles walk. Now, he describes, first of all, if you're following along and following along with the notes, you'll find this. He describes first the Gentile mindset or, and then the Gentile behaviors. And he says, you are Christians, so let's forsake this way of living. How many of you believe Christians ought to live a different kind of life? I got to share with our starting point class last week. We, whenever we have new folks, every several months, we'll do a starting point lunch. I shared with them that one of the emphases of our church is, is not that just we come and worship, but that the worship of our God changes the way that we live. And that's an emphasis, uh, that's a biblical emphasis. So he, first of all, he points us to a Gentile way of thinking and then behavior. Notice what he says in verse number 17. Not as other Gentiles walk, the first thing at the end of verse 17, what is the first description that you see here of the Gentile thinking? It is the what? The vanity of the mind. Then it says, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the... Now, this is a bit of a harsh word. What's this next word? The what? Ignorance that is in them because of the... Blindness. Wow, there's a lot in here. Vanity, darkness, alienated, ignorance, blindness. Now, I just want to say this from the start. Is this teaching that as Christians, we have intellectual superiority to the rest of the world? Is that the point of this? Not at all. Not at all. You see, the mind and the intellect is a gift from God, whether it is possessed by a Christian or it is someone else in the world who's not a believer. And so I think we need to understand what we're speaking about here is a spiritual mindset and spiritual thinking and spiritual understanding. And I think as Christians, we need to have a humble approach. Um, and I've known, and I may have been guilty of this when I was younger, of thinking, well, because I'm a Christian and I have the truth of God's Word, that makes me just a little bit smarter than everybody else out there. Have you ever run into believers or been guilty of that kind of mindset yourself before? It's a self-righteousness. It's dangerous. Because we're not. God has given intellect and wisdom to, to all, of his, all, of, all of creation, all of humanity. But he does say, but there is a wisdom, you could read about this in 1 Corinthians, there is a type of wisdom that belongs to the world, and there is a type of wisdom that only belongs to the believer. And so when he says this, he says, first of all, the vanity of the mind. He says that without faith in Christ, all thinking is vain. What does vain mean? 
Well, the word here means without, the, the literal idea of the Greek here is that it's aimless. You might have great intellectual ability and prowess. You might be good at your job. You might be good at your career. You might be good at, at, or at economics or science, or you might be good at history. You might be good at any anything of the, of the mind and the intellect, but the question has to be, if there is no God, if there is no Christ, if there is no eternal salvation, what is the meaning or point of any of it? And what he says here is the way that the world lives is without, the mindset is without true purpose, without true eternal meaning. So I'd encourage everyone Every, anyone who's not a believer in Jesus to really ask themselves the hard questions. Ask themselves the, different, the difficult questions and say, well, what do I believe the purpose of my life is? He says here that the Gentile mind does not have a good answer for that. And then he says that there is a darkness. When I think of darkness, I think of that uncertainty, that, that, that just... I'm not sure what, uh, what I'm going to bump into or what I'm going to come in or what might be coming at me. And he's just describing the life without Christ. And there's a sadness here. That there's, that there's an emptiness. There's a darkness. And there's a separation. That's that idea of alienated. It, he says here that they are alienated from the life of God. They experience this life. And Aaron said that, he, he gave that quote that, in this life, for the believer, this life is the, this is the only life where we will suffer. But the sad thing is, if you're not a believer, this is the only life you have. You see, God created us for eternal life. But without Christ, we experience eternal death in the lake of fire. These are, these are difficult truths, but they're truths nonetheless. The Word of God gives them to us. Ignorance and blindness, that there is, the Bible says that, that there is a devil, there is a real Satan, and his chief goal is not necessarily to get people to do all kinds of awful things, though he does. His chief goal is to blind the minds and eyes of people so they would not come to faith in Christ. And some, some, I've, some of you remember a time in your life where you were blinded to the truth of Jesus you maybe even rejected the truth of Jesus. But by God's grace, He removed the blinders and you saw the light of Christ. So there's a Gentile, he says, but now interestingly enough, he's not speaking to Gentiles here, he's speaking to Christians. And what he's saying is this, don't borrow your thinking patterns from who? Christian, don't borrow your thinking patterns from where? The world, the Gentiles, don't, Christian, you have a new purpose, a new motivation. Don't borrow your way of thinking from the world. We have the light of Christ. But not only the mind, but look at the behaviors now. It always begins in the mind, and then it flows out in the behaviors. He says now in verse number 18, or verse number 19, verse 19, after this mindset has happened, it says in verse 19, who being, what's this phrase say? Who being what? Past feeling. Could I give you this, this word? Desensitized. Desensitized. He says because of the worldly mindset, people have become desensitized, well, you might ask, to what? To sin. And the more, 
the more that a culture or a society is moved from the truth of God's word. It used to be that people would engage in a certain conduct and they'd say, well, yeah, I know this is wrong, but I just want to do it anyway. But now we're reaching a point where people don't feel guilt. And so there was a time when a pastor or a preacher or even a faithful Christian could say to someone, listen, the way that you're living is wrong. You need to repent in love, of course. And people would sense that, just that, yeah, I've known this was wrong. But we're moving to a place where people are becoming desensitized. It was the case in this culture. They didn't feel that anything they were doing was wrong. And what, what was their conduct? Well, first of all, this is a word that you probably didn't use this week, lasciviousness. It, it really has the idea, it, it is sexual immorality. That the culture of the day was just filled with, with sexual decadence and self-pleasure. In fact, so much so that they would work the uncleanness with greediness. That's an interesting phrase there. What it means is there was just a lust for more and more and more. Wow, I don't want to harp on this, but do we see this around us? Do we see a culture that is very much bent on sexual pleasure and, and looking for more and more, and we've gotten to the point where it's no, it no longer affects the way people feel. Now, but again, that's the world. And what he's saying here is he's not actually railing primarily against the world, but he's warning who? He's warning the church. And he's saying this manner of living belongs to who? Belongs to the Gentile mindset. They have an excuse because there's a blindness. They, not that it's excusable, but you understand my point here. It's understandable why the world would live that way, but it's not understandable why the believer would live that way. Right? That's what he's saying. So he says, Christians, I want you to be holy. You belong to me. Forsake the way of the Gentiles. So now you say, all right, Ethan, so what does that mean? I'm going to be more dedicated. I'm going to be more religious. I'm going to read more. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to work harder. Well, I'm not saying that's entirely wrong, but that's not actually the solution that he gives. Look what he says now in verse 20. In verse 20, speaking about this Gentile mind, this Gentile behavior, would you, with good energy, read verse number 20 out loud with me, begin, but ye have not so learned Christ. What a statement, right? He says, that's the world. That, what, everything I just described, that's the world. But who do we know? Who have we learned? Christ. But we know Christ. But we've learned Christ. And when we have experienced Jesus, when we see him for who he is, when we see him both in the way that he lived, in, in, in his death, and his resurrection, you see what he's teaching us here is it doesn't begin with how we behave. It begins with our relationship with Jesus. But you've, you have not so learned Christ. This isn't what Jesus taught us. Verse 21 so he's saying now, follow the way of Jesus, follow the way of Christ. 
If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him. He's like, I'm assuming here that you know all about Jesus. You see, he starts with an if there. This isn't an if like he's wondering if it's true. He's saying, if you will, he said, church, is it safe to assume that you know enough about Jesus? And what would you answer to that? Yeah. We know enough to know what he stood for. We know enough to who, about who he is. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as, look at this. I love this statement too. As the what? The truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Pilate would look at Jesus and, and Pilate said, what is truth? And their truth embodied was standing before him. Jesus is truth. And I always, I don't want to just pass over this. I want to uh, underscore that. I want to make a note of that. That as we compared the way of the world as being vanity, the way of Jesus is a way of absolute certainty and truth. Truth is in Christ. Not because of me, not because I've figured it all out, but because I've met the one who is truth. Now I can be certain that my life has meaning, it has purpose, it is eternal. Because it's not based on a set of man-made religious rules, it's not built on a philosophy, but it's built on the person of Jesus. And can I just share with you what a blessing that life is? It's good to know the Lord. It's good to know Jesus. So now, as we follow the way of Christ, it doesn't begin with what we do. It begins with who we know. But that doesn't mean we just sit back and do nothing. Of course, there's an active part of our Christian life. Let's read on into verse number 22. So now he says, that ye put off, put off concerning the, look at these two words, concerning the what? Former conversation. If you want to paraphrase that, the old way of living. Put off the what? How do we paraphrase it? Put off the, the old way of living. Take the way that you used to live and just throw it in the trash. Put it off. Get rid of it. You don't need it anymore. Put off that, that former lifestyle, that old way of living, your former conversation, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. He says, this will happen at some point in your Christian life. At some point, every Christian is going to be tempted to start to return to some of their old habits. That's who he's dealing with right here. He says, no, you've got to make a decision that you know Christ, so you're going to put off the old way of living. In verse 23, and now you will be, what's it say? Renewed in the spirit of your mind. The spirit of your mind. That now, just like the world had a way of thinking and a way of behaving, the believer has a new way of thinking and a new way of behaving. So you put off the old man, you let Christ renew your thinking, in verse 24, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is, now this is really cool, 
this section just stopped me in my tracks for a minute. Which the, Put on the new man, which after God is created. Where does your new life come from? Did it come from you saying, you know what? I think I'll be a better person. You know what? I think I'll start to change my life. Is that how it happened? It was what? It was what? It was created. It was created. Now listen, this is something that, this is part of our Christian faith that is clearly supernatural. After all, we have a supernatural faith in a man who rose from the dead. So we should assume that part of our Christian experience should not be just intellectual, but supernatural as well. Wouldn't you agree with that? It would follow that we would have a supernatural experience. And that supernatural experience is this, that if any man be in Christ, Paul would say in another passage, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The fact is this. I don't know. And in fact, we're going to symbolize it today in baptism. Okay? In just a few minutes, we're going to, for those of you that aren't familiar with baptism, this, this here is full of water. And Christians have been baptizing in deep water for since the very beginning. And the believer in Christ is going to come into this water. And what we're going to say when this person's in the water is we're going to ask, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? And they're going to answer as many of us would answer, have you accepted Jesus as your Savior? Yes, yes I have. Now, we've been given this ordinance, ritual, if you will, whatever you'd like to call it. It has, no, it has no mystical power, but it's a powerful symbol. And it means this. We're going to say, as the scriptures say in the book of Romans, that person is going, that believer is going to go under the water. And when they go under the water, we're going to quote the scriptures that say, buried in the likeness of his death. And then he's going to come up out of the water, and we are going to say, raised, raised to walk in newness of life. And just as Jesus was buried in the ground and came up alive, when you believed on Jesus as your Savior, the moment you called on Christ and said, I'm a sinner, I'm lost, but I believe in you, Jesus, the moment that happened, your old identity was buried and your new life in Christ was, was created anew. And this water is going to symbolize that this morning. It's a public statement. It's one of the most exciting things that we do. It's a public statement whereby a believer is going to say, I have chosen to give my life to Jesus. Wow. The Holy Spirit does what water could never do, and that's create a new creature in Christ. Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, gives us new life. Do you have new life? Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Listen, my point this morning, what I would really like to do, what I'm really aiming at, what this scripture does, is just to show you whether you're in this room or whether you're watching our video today, the fact is this, if you don't know Christ, if you have never received Jesus as your Savior, what, if, what are you living for? 
Jesus, Jesus offers you everything. He offers not just a better life, but he offers you all of eternity. What could be better? And he asks nothing in return except that you surrender to him and say, yes, I believe I'm yours. Why would you resist the God who loves like that? There's no sin, there's no pride that's worth hanging on to to lose Jesus. Receive Christ today. And when, and then you say, well, well, Ethan, I understand you, you, you folks that are Bible believers and you believe that salvation is by grace, but doesn't it matter how people live their lives? Well, of course it does. But the problem is if you get the cart before the horse and my good works earn my salvation, the problem is who does that make the hero of the story? Me. And that's a problem because I am a big sinner. I have nothing to offer God. But if I come as a sinner who can offer him nothing, who's the hero of that story? Jesus is the hero. He's the Savior. If it's the other way around, I am my own Savior. I don't need a Savior if I can earn it. But then, what kind of a salvation would it be? What kind of a salvation would it be if he saved me by grace and then I just said, thanks, I'll see you later and do my own thing and walked away? That wouldn't be much of a salvation, would it? No, because the moment I say yes, I can do nothing, he says, okay, I give you everything, now I'm going to change the way that you live your life. It's faith and grace followed by transforming work that I do with the power of, the, of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's going to talk about now. Verse 25. So because of this, there's a holy way Christians should live. The holy conduct of the church. This is the last segment. So let's follow along closely. Verse 25. So because of that, behave a certain way. I purchased you. Oh, Remember the toothbrush? Toothbrush, you are mine. I will share you with no one. I will keep you in a safe place. What a silly illustration, right? Now magnify that a bazillion times. And then another bazillion times. Is that a number, bazillion, or no? No, I didn't. okay, thanks, Mike. Jesus says, I... I I gave you everything. I saved you. Now you belong to me. Not, not in a dictatorial way, but in a loving way. He says, I want you for myself. I want to show you my love. I want, I, want you, I want your life to have purpose and meaning. So because of that, here's how I ask you to live. Do you think it's reasonable for Jesus to ask, ask us to behave a certain way? Do we think that's reasonable? Sure it is. More than reasonable. He says, so because of that, verse 25, please stop lying. We're getting real practical now. Please stop lying and tell the truth. A lot of people like to think, well, what are the rules of the Christian life? And some Christians even make lots of extra rules to, to, you know, to be extra holy. The Bible gives us some pretty simple, very simple instructions on how to live. And he says, hey, be a person of your word. A child of God, a a, a, a believer should be a person of their word. And not only that, but he reminds us of what we saw earlier is that, it, for one thing, we belong to each other. We're members one of another. Tell the truth. 
Verse 26, hold your temper. Hold your temper. There's some things that are going to make you angry. Some things will make you angry for good reason. But don't be sinful in your response. Control your temper. Don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Get it, get it dealt with. If there's anger you've got with somebody, don't go to bed tonight angry with someone. Make it right. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Control your temper. Don't give place to the devil in verse 27. Don't, are there areas in your life, like, can I give you an example of this? If, if you struggled with alcohol, don't give the devil an opportunity to tempt you, right? Just, just make sense. If you're part of the party, if you came out of the party mindset, don't go back into that environment. Don't give, don't give the devil any room in your life. Verse 28, stop stealing. Stop stealing. Speaking to Christians. It's like, I heard somebody speaking about this this week, and it was like, I'm just, I'm struggling with this sin. What is the secret? What is the key? The Bible says, hey, stop doing that. Don't, don't do that, Christian. Of course, we know it's built on the transforming power, but sometimes it's just real simple. Wait a minute. I belong to Jesus. Jesus, your Holy Spirit can control me. Oh, I don't have to behave that way anymore. It doesn't have any power over me. I can literally, now, now hang on, Christian. If you've got faith, because the whole Christian life is built on faith, if you've got faith that Jesus lives in you, if you've got faith that the Holy Spirit gives you power, there's no reason why you can't say, you know what? I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to lie anymore. I don't have to steal or cheat or be dishonest at work anymore. I can change because the Spirit can change me. In fact, I'm going to work hard in verse 28. I'm going to be a hard worker. Wait, I, what else? I'm, I can be generous. I'm going to work with my hands so that I have enough money, not just for myself, but for other people. Well, what a great life, huh? What a blessed life. What a holy life. Verse 29, watch your language. Watch your language. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. That's both vile, dirty words and gossipy words. Don't do it. Stop. But rather, use words that are good to edify. Minister grace unto the hearers. Don't be a complainer, a criticizer, a corrupt speaker, but be an encourager, an edifier, an uplifter. That's the Christian way. This is the Christian way. When people think, when people say, what is a Christian? This is the life that they should be able to describe. But sadly, sometimes it's not the case. Verse 30, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Hmm. We have the Holy Spirit in us. We belong to the Holy Spirit. He says here, in your actions, are your actions, do you realize that every place you go, if you're a Christian, you take the Lord Jesus through the person of the Holy Spirit, you take the Holy Spirit with you every place you go, every show you watch, every song you listen to, every, every place you are, the Holy Spirit is with you. 
Is he sad to be where you go? Is he sad to watch what I watch? Or do we just not think about it? This is true Christian living for holiness. Remember, we belong to him. Verse 31, the bitterness, the wrath, the anger, clamor, all that evil speaking, be put away from you with all malice. Verse 32, we'll leave this verse up. Verse 32, let's read it together. Ready? And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. This verse, stay with me now, we bring it home. This verse is the chief motivation for everything that we've talked about. You say, but it's just so hard to change. Wait, it's just so hard to be kind. It's just so, whatever it is, what is the motivation? Where does it come from? Who does it come from in this verse? Jesus. Look what it says. God, for whose sake? Hath forgiven you. God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. What does that mean? If you're forgiven, is it because of what you did? Is it for your sake? Well, I just, I just, I just looked down and I saw Cal. God says, I looked down, I saw Cal, and I just felt so bad for him. So for Cal's sake, I saved him. It's not what it says. It says, God says, I looked at Aaron, I looked at Cal, I looked at whoever you are in the room, I looked at Aaron, and said, There's nothing. There are no redeeming qualities in him. God looked at me and said, Ethan has no redeeming qualities. But Jesus, but Jesus, oh, he is worthy. He is worth something. And Jesus said to the Father, I will go and I will stand in their place. I will stand in the place of the unworthy sinner Father, don't forgive them for their sake. Jesus said, forgive them for my sake. That's the crux of the Christian message right there. We are forgiven and changed, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. Can I ask you two questions? Has there been a time in your life where you stepped into that relationship with God? Has there been a time in your life where you realized it wasn't because of you, but it was because of Jesus? Has there been a time, and we call that being saved, being born again? Nothing that I did, but for Christ's sake, because I believed on Jesus, because I believed in him, God said, I will save you. I love you, I died for you, and I will save you because of the sacrifice of Christ. If you've never received Jesus, will you do it today? I mean, right now. I mean, in this moment, would you bow your heart to God? You don't have to stand up, move around, do anything, but, but just you and God, right now, wherever you are, you would say, dear God, I believe today. This is the moment. This right now is the moment where I understand that I'm a sinner and I accept your salvation. The Bible says that anyone, whosoever, shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In a moment, we're going to, if you've not done it yet, in a moment, we're going to pray. We're going to have soft music play and just the time for us to think and meditate a little bit. 
If you've not done it at that moment, would you say, Lord, I do receive you right now? If you'll do that, you'll be changed by His grace. That's the first question. Have you ever done that? If not, will you do it today? The second question is for those of us who have received Christ by faith. Have you gotten to a point where you said, you know what, I've changed enough. I've made it far enough. Remember the first verse that we looked at? Walk worthy of Christ. If God is asking you to take the next step, would you do that? Would you take that next step this morning? Whatever it is, it might be a step of obedience. Maybe you've never been baptized. Maybe you've never, you know, you know what, I'm saved, but I've never followed in baptism. Or maybe, it's, maybe it's a step of a change that needs to happen in your life. Maybe you'd say, yeah, I'm saved, but, but I have this habit in my life and I want to give it over to the Lord this morning. It could be anything. It could be a lack of generosity where you just are hanging on too tight to everything you have and God's asking you to do something. Whatever it is, this morning, would you walk worthy of the calling of Christ? Please bow your heads and close your eyes if you, if you would with me this morning. Heads bowed and eyes closed. This is our moment to respond we call it an invitation. This is the time for you and me to think about the Word of God that we just studied and to make some decisions about our lives. The most important decision you can make in this moment is to receive Christ as your Savior. If you're in this room and you've never done that, I'd ask you to please, if God is speaking to your heart right now in this quiet moment, would you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior? Would you say, yes, Lord, I do receive you now? Christians, let's also be praying. We'll take just a, just a minute or two as the instruments play for us to think about how God has spoken to us this morning. going to lead us in prayer and then we're going to sing if you need to continue praying I'd encourage you to do that if you'd like to pray with someone I'll be standing at the front here you can come and I'd love to have prayer with you this morning if you need someone to pray for you or with you Lord Jesus we thank you for your transforming power in our lives God I thank you for just who you are I pray for any who are struggling this morning God, I pray that you'd speak to their hearts. I pray that you'd give them, the Lord, the faith to believe or the faith to change. But we thank you for the salvation we have in Christ. And we prepare now to lift our voices in praise and adoration to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.